One of the things I wanted you to to think about for a second is um, this whole idea of, of gift giving and, and, and what it's like to receive gifts. Let me ask you, have you ever gotten a gift that you didn't really want? I remember when I was a child, we would go from Minneapolis and we'd celebrate Christmas at our grandparents and, and there was uh, Aunt Ethel was notorious for giving us kids, you know, five, six, seven, eight years of age at the time, gifts that we weren't really crazy about. We'd open them up and, and it would be this kind of stocking cap that was like, like, you know, we'd kind of be mouthing to our mom, do we have to wear that? And we'd get sometimes socks that you would just, you know, you'd go, wow, thank you, Aunt Ethel. You know, not necessarily there weren't gifts that we needed. We Those things you want. Do you ever... Um, also given a gift and, and the person, you, you can just tell when they've received it, they're kind of going, not really crazy about this one. What I've been saying and we've been talking about this fall, uh, a theme, one of the things that we've talked about is, is this whole idea that God goes where he's wanted. The very presence of God in our life is a gift. And he loves it when our hearts long and desire and hunger and want him. And so I ask you the question as we think of this message even today, what does you want? What is it you want that you want from God? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have loved us so much that you left your throne in heaven. You entered this earth as a mere child, a baby, humble, innocent, helpless. And you gave yourself to a world that really needs you and sometimes is not clear about how much we want you. Father, we ask that you would just create the the want in our life, the hunger, the thirst. And we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would speak this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week I was sharing with you in this message, at one point I related that Jeremiah had given a a word to the people of Israel at a time in their life when they really, really wanted him. They had been in, in, in Jerusalem and at a certain point as a result of their, their not wanting God and really moving away from him, he came in and he, because of their sin, and it's a natural result of our sin, we cut ourselves off. And, and, and so he allows for us to experience, even in this life, this cut-offness from him. And, and Babylon came in, the nation, and, and they deported this group of people, Israel, to Babylon where they lived in exile. And Jeremiah was praying and seeking and, and hungering after God and wanting to know when they could be present with him again in that city of Jerusalem, in that land of Israel, in that place where his temple was once. And God tells the people of Israel that his eye is on them. Their exile will come to an end. His word will not fail. Even some 400 years before the birth of Jesus, God is assuring them 
So Jeremiah records in, in chapter 29, verses 10 and 11, for when 70 years are completed for Babylon, in the sense of, of, of the numbers are so significant in the Bible. Seven means completion. Seventy is a big deal. It means seven times ten. It's God basically saying, I mean, when it's fully completed, you've gone through the testing, you've been, you know, your character has been refined, you are at a place again where you really want me. At that point, he says, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And then a great message, a great message for you and for me, great message for this church, really a great message for the world. These words that come next, for I know the plans I have for you. Declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope in a future and I, it is not just a personal promise of God. It is not just a promise for a people of God, a, a community of followers of God. It is a promise for the world. The promise was that at some point when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell apart from God, and it says that they were, they were actually removed from the garden, which is the very center of his presence, God said at that point, I will begin to work things out. I will call a person Abraham. We will found a nation. And in this nation, Israel, I will begin to show myself. And through the, the teachings and, and through the leading of Moses, you'll begin to see and understand who I am through the sacrifices and the laws and all those things. And all these things are going to point to me and at, and at some point I'm going to come and bring a great leader named David who will set up a kingdom. This kingdom will be like the kingdom that will come. And someday, after some 400 years of silence, I will be birthed in your presence because God has a desire not just to come even at Christmas, but He promises that He will redeem this world at some point at the end, He will come again and He will restore all things. For I have plans for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and the future. I said last week, and there's some truth to this. I think some deep truth. To get to your promised land, you need to live in the promise. To get to your promised land, you need to live in the promise. And I don't necessarily mean some of the things that you might conjure up in your mind. I mean when the God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to you and He assures you. And the most important part of that promise is the promise of who He is to you. You need to live in the promise. You need to grasp hold of. You need to take as firmly as you can with your the fingers of your heart and grab hold of this incredible truth that God loves you and is with you and his promises to walk with you. So as last week when I was looking at these birth narratives in chapters 1 and 2, specifically verse 18 through the end of chapter 2, I had mentioned the fact that there are some interesting things here. There are five prophetic, uh, five protective interventions where God allows um, an angel to go and interrupt the dream or, or come into the dream of Joseph or to the wise men in order to make certain that they would know that his eye is watching and he will intervene to make sure the second part. There are five prophetic promises in these two chapters. And these promises state the fact that his word will not fail. So he really wants to get across the point that when God has a purpose that he wants to accomplish, he actually stands over it with protective intervention at every point to move it along and he will make certain that these prophetic promises will be fulfilled. So I was thinking that would be the end of that message when I planned this months ago and when I began to kind of lay out just some thoughts on this. 
And I was thinking I'd do the story of verse 18 through the end of chapter 1 on Joseph, but I couldn't let go of these prophetic promises. As I studied it the week before, there was so much in it, so much that was rich, that I thought, you know, we need to know this. We need to look at these five prophetic promises. We need to understand that the birth of God in the flesh through Jesus gave the people of Israel hope that they grabbed onto, and that promise was that anchor in their heart. And we need to also know that the birth of God in our own life situations is strengthened as we hold to these promises that we will find in these scriptures that tell us that that in a sense they are the same anchor that help us hold fast to the reality of what God wants to, to know and live in. And so the first foundational promise is found here as we get into chapter um, 1, verse 18, the story of Joseph. And it's a promise you can kind of bank your life on. It is what I call foundational because the ones that we look at in the next four that we will look at as we go through the text today will be built upon this in a sense. You have to understand the scene. Mary comes to Joseph, says she has this encounter with an angel and she's pregnant and she's beginning to feel probably the signs of this pregnancy and she now has to let Joseph know. I imagine that wasn't easy, but eventually she lets Joseph know. Joseph is torn to pieces because he's not sure what to do, what to, how to, to, to handle this, whether to believe her or whatever. And so he goes to bed wrestling with his thoughts, we're told. And as he wrestles with his thoughts, being a righteous man, he doesn't want to hurt Mary. He loves Mary. So he, he's planning on what can I do with his own integrity. He can't marry her. He doesn't feel he can do that before God. And so he, he says, okay, that's not an option. But instead of disgracing her, he decides to, to quietly dismiss her. And as he's wrestling, he falls asleep. And in the midst of his sleep, there's this protective intervention. The the angel of God comes to him and says, take Mary as your wife. Now, at this point, you might think that once he has this dream and this intervention and he's had this experience with God, you might think that things are going to get really good. Things will kind of, you know, kind of the path will be a bed of roses from this point because God's here. He's aware of the fact that God's with them in this. You kind of would think when God shows up with an angel, there's no more worries. You can now trust. Life is good. You could probably add, you know, sometimes I kind of wonder if you couldn't add, and Mary and Joseph lived happily ever after. I read a book just this last week, and my wife can testify to it, that I was up till one or more in the morning, and I don't normally do that reading this book, a book by Laura Hildebrandt called Unbroken. She wrote the number one New York Times best-selling author of the book Seabiscuit, and she now took and tackled the life story of Louis Zamperini, who was a, an Olympic star in the 1936, and, as we, and, and after that, soon as, after that, the war, when it broke out, he, was in, he, he enlisted, and he was ending up um, a bombardier flying planes, and he would do a number of missions. One day he was sent out on a plane that was not really a, a safe plane to go out on to look for some other pilots and another crew that had been lost at sea, and his own plane went down, and only three of them survived. They were for some 40 days in a raft, broke the record of some 20 or so days that, were, that, that people had been in a raft before. 
for 40 days, emaciated, you know, trying to live, not hardly anything to survive on. And through that whole process, saw signs and things of God. One time, very near the very end, around the 35th day, they're in this raft. And, and, and he, he sees one of the guys has died at this point, so it's just him and another person. And, and things are so still. He looks out at the water, he sees the stars, he sees everything, and it's just brilliantly beautiful. And he just knows this is a gift of God. And then all of a sudden he starts hearing a chorus of singing. He looks up and there are angels singing. As you read the story, the next day or so, they're, they're getting close to land. They spot land and you're going, it, you know, God's there. He's assured them the angels are there and they're just about to land on shore and a boat comes up and in the boat are a bunch of Japanese military who pick him up and put him on an island where some of the worst torture had occurred. He is now a prisoner of war. He goes for another few years as a prisoner of war. And it's interesting, things go from, from bad to worse. And the horrors of the 40 days at sea, when he now sees these angels, he hears the chorus which has come to him, are merely appetizers, in a sense, for the next couple of years as POWs. For Joseph and the angels' intervention, it did give direction. There was a protective intervention, but there was also a prophetic promise that came in with the assurance that said, Joseph, for the next few months and the next five to six years, I'm with you. And things get bad. Rumors begin to circulate. Reputations get marred. As Mary's stomach grows with the child, so does her shame and humiliation. As, as questions among the people of Nazareth are being asked, they're laughed at, they're, they're, they're made fun of, they're mocked. And good old boy Joseph, Mr. Righteous Guy, isn't quite what he looked to be. And they're maligned for doing nothing wrong before God and everything right. Text says that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. And then he adds this, not just to guarantee us that it was a virgin birth, but to show us how obedient and how, how desiring uh, Joseph was of God, how he wanted God. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And so it goes from bad to worse as Joseph gets news that they have to report to, to their hometown where their ancestors um, were in Bethlehem. And so they, they have to actually go there to register for a, sentence, a census. And she's fully pregnant and she's about to give birth and she has to get on a, a donkey on this long trek down to Bethlehem. I was reminded of this when I was writing this. And, you know, I'm wondering how Joseph is feeling. I remember when we had our, the birth of our second child, um, Kenzie, and... I was at church. It was Palm Sunday morning. I come home from church and, and Grace stayed home because she was like ready to go kind of thing. And uh, I come home and she's ready to go to the hospital. We had things all set. You know how you have your plan. You do this and you have the right route. And I had all that in place and had the luxury car that we're going to take was our Bonneville. And I remember I got in it to it. As she was getting ready. I turned it on and I see there's hardly any gas in it. I blew it. And so we had to take the little Toyota Tercel, which was a stick shift, which I'm not the greatest stick shift driver necessarily. And I remember the whole way, just probably like the donkey jerk ride that Mary was on, Grace, I'll, I'll never forget your face, Grace. Um, I wonder if Joseph was feeling like that. So they arrive and they find that their reservations are lost. Things are just getting bad. 
Some kind of computer glitch, I guess. There's no room available. So they find a room in a stable cave, and there's a shelter there where there are animals being kept. And Joseph, can you imagine, as he takes the baby from the Heavenly Father, and he lays his baby in a food trough, and he's thinking, yeah, angels were there, but it doesn't seem like he's too close in some ways. And then from worse, it goes to worse yet. As soon after the birth of baby Jesus, fearing for their lives, hearing that Herod was put to death, all those boys who were under two years of age around Bethlehem and all those surrounding areas, another protective intervention from God comes to an angel. I was just wondering if he's thinking, are these just dreams? Because the last one's not turning out the way I'd hoped it would. And here they're told to go to a foreign land and a backwoods couple from Galilee head to the lights and glamour of Egypt. Now they're totally exiled, away from their people, their land, and their God. For Joseph, the angel's intervention didn't only give direction, but it gave assurance that the next few months to five to six years, they could count on this. God was with them. When God shows up, the expectation a lot of times in our life is that things are going to smooth out. There will be no more turns. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more difficulty. Life should be easy, good, and full, the best of everything. Here's the prophetic promise that comes in if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means... This God, the Heavenly Father, has entered into this world to let us know at a point in history that He cares intimately about each and every one of us and that He is with us. Matthew inserts these words in the middle of the story to remind us. It's an editorial comment, really, to assure us of this prophetic promise that God does have a plan. He does have a future. God will intervene to bring his purposes to fulfillment. And we're called to trust and to walk with him and to bank on the promise that God is with you through thick and thin, through rough and tough, through every twist and turn, God is with you. And here's the key. Here's the key to opening its impactful, life-changing, reality-altering truth. Do you want Him? Will you acknowledge Him? Not just say you do it in your head. I mean, in your heart. It's the lesson God's really been trying to teach me here in these last couple of years. Is, is It's not a head thing. We all can walk around. A lot of us have a lot of knowledge. But do we want Him in our hearts? And will we live that way out of our hearts? In your struggle, in your life decisions, as you wrestle at night like Joseph did, when you face trials, when you get rear-ended, no fault of your own, when you come to a dead end, do you believe you're not alone? Do you know you haven't been abandoned? You are not left to your own devices. This promise says God is with you. Well, the next thing is kind of interesting because it builds on this. Now he begins to start defining the kind of person that God is with because the next prophetic promise is that God is with the humble, which is a wonderful truth. 
God reaches down, way down below what we would ever expect, and He will empower the weak and the insignificant and the marginalized, the ones that we will actually walk by, you know, be by the road or whether it be as you're going through like you know those the skyways in, in downtown, and you just kind of just kind of people you just don't notice. You kind of just walk by. God looks at those. The prophet Samuel was searching for God's man to rule the people of Israel. He had seen six sons go by him, Jesse's six sons, and they all looked like they were pretty capable people. But God kept saying no to each one. So finally, Jesse has got them all in front of him, and Samuel's a little bit kind of going confused and kind of listening to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God probably threw him and says, you know, ask, is there anyone else? He asked Jesse, is there anybody else? And Jesse goes, yeah, i got one more son. This little guy, he's ruddy, he, you know, he doesn't, you know, he's out watching sheep. Get him. The little boy, the last born, the one who didn't seem to have maybe the promise the others that's come before him. And, and Samuel looks at him and goes, God's with that one. Because God is with the humble. The world looks to the wise, the resourceful, the powerful, the influential, the wealthy, the elite, the gifted and talented, the best and the brightest, the star, the person who has the abilities to make it happen. That's what the world, that's what we naturally look towards. But God looks to the small, the insignificant, and the least to show the world who really makes it happen. God is with the humble because only the humble are willing enough to step out of the way to let the Holy Spirit wholly fill and use them. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Here's the scene. The wise men are coming to Jerusalem. They're standing before Herod. They're looking for the anointed child. They've been been seeing in the stars that the sign has come. They began to realize as they searched ancient scripture that God mysteriously by his hand sovereignly put in their hands because Daniel was one of their wise men who kept these scriptures. And they found that as they read that, that there would be this king who would be setting up his rule during the time that Rome came to power. And there would be a star that would point itself to Israel. All these things they knew. And they knew they needed to go to the capital of Jerusalem. If they could get there, they just didn't know exactly where the child would be born. They get there, they ask Herod. Herod doesn't know. He gets the, the wise religious ones, the ones who know it all. They come and they say, yeah, well, yeah, Micah said in Bethlehem. And here's the, here's the prophetic promise to the question, where will the Christ be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. Now catch what it says about Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I find it interesting when all the eyes are looking to the royal and capital city of Jerusalem, when all the eyes are looking up at Mount Zion, God looks down to the little town of Bethlehem. And he uses a small, the insignificant, the marginalized town just a few miles south of Jerusalem to birth his greatest gift. No setting would display this little gem better than this little place, this little town. Note, this is a straightforward prophetic promise. It predicts it some 600 years before the birth of Christ, and God's word doesn't fail. He will use the humble. He will use anyone who is open and available and willing to get out of the way to fully let in the Holy Spirit of God. 
You may be thinking, you know, I don't have a lot to offer. I don't have a lot to give. I'm just really rather little and insignificant. And I feel often so kind of marginalized by those who seem to have the gifts and the power and the ability to make things happen. And God goes, you know what? Here's the problem with the people who think that they have the ability to make things happen. People will look at them. But those who don't, those who don't realize it, who say, I don't have a lot. In fact, if you just, you'd use me, God, possibly could you? And God says, boy, can I use you? Because now when people look at you, they're going to know you don't have the ability to make it happen. They will know that I do and they will see me. Folks, God wants to use you. And you have been gifted. Don't look at your gifts. Don't look at all your abilities. Look at your God who gives you the ability to do the things you could never do. You know, God wants to use this congregation. You might look around and go, there's not a lot. We don't have this or that. You know, it would be good for us to not have a lot. It would be good for us to realize our lot is in God. And I want to tell you, I truly, truly believe this, that God didn't call me here just to kind of have a a few years of ministry. I believe God has called me here and he's called you here as well. And he's calling more people here as well because he is going to and he desires to birth a work of his Holy Spirit to do something to change this community. And I believe to change this world. I really do. And I believe in my heart. And when we see these kind of scriptures, it's very clear. That as Proverbs tells, God opposes the proud. But guess what? To those who are humble, He is with them to fulfill all His heart's desire for you and for me and for those who need Him through us. So the next prophetic promise really builds on that because He says He's with you and He's with the humble, particularly those who are insignificant, who need Him. And now He goes on and He says, in every way I'll be with you. God is with you in every way. As I look at this prophetic scripture it's really interesting because it's not one of those straight, outright predictions. The first two kind of are, you know, it'll be a virgin and, and it happens, and it'll be Bethlehem and it happens. But this is a little bit different. And, and I, I have to ask you to stay with me for a second, okay? This, this is a little bit of teaching. We have a very narrow view and understanding of what is prophetic. We often think of prophetic only as a future prediction that are written in a few words that get fulfilled later on through an event. Here's the scene. After Jesus is born, possibly age one or two, there's another protective intervention through the angel. And I think it's interesting because the the angel comes to Joseph and here's the words. Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Now, what I think is funny about that is because either Joseph isn't too bright or what, but you would think you would take mom with. I, I would think all you need to say is take the child. But, but you know, it, I, as I read this, I just kind of laughed, so I thought I'd throw this in myself. But take the child and his mother. And so here's verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. During the night, needed to make his escape Kind of, you know, people, he didn't want people to know. And he left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you go back to Hosea 11.1 and read it in its context, which we will do in just a moment, you will think, come on, Matthew. That's a stretch to say the prophets predicted that the Christ child would come out of Egypt. But here's where the understanding, the broader nature of prophecy is helpful. That's why I'm saying stay with me for a second. 
Prophecy is far more than a prediction and a fulfillment by an event. My New Testament professor back at Trinity Divinity School in Deerfield, a brilliant man, he writes in a book, Don Carson writes, in this little book called God with the Themes from Matthew. We sometimes think of prophecy as nothing more than a combination of simple predictions in sentences followed by the dawning of one event that those sentences predicted. In the Bible, that is one important kind of prophecy, but it is only one. The prophecy of Micah 5.2, quoted in Matthew 2.6, belongs to that kind, but there are other kinds of equal importance. For instance, here's the brighter view of, of prophetic words. For instance, the letter to the Hebrew argues that the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament has built in clues that made the entire system point forward to the greatest sacrifice of all, the sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah on the cross. That's a prophetic That's a prophetic pointer of God. In other places, he writes in the New Testament, we learn that the law prophetically anticipated the gospel. We learn that the Levitical priesthood pointed to a new high priest who would effectively and eternally stand before God and humanity. We learn about how the ancient kingdom of David served as a model or a type of the coming kingdom of God through the Messiah. We learn how certain covenant features were merely shadows that would actually pass away and become obsolete when the true light shined through the new covenant. And on and on and on. The word of God is so full of anticipation of what's to come. That in every way, every jot and tittle, every, every, every little passing reference, every sign and every type, every one of those things will be fulfilled. And what God is basically saying, that is true for you. There is not a thing that is in his heart that as you walk with him that he will not bring to fulfillment if you couple yourself with him. So, what's this broader nature of prophecy? Look at verse 15. Joseph and Mary, they, it says they bring the toddler out of Egypt. This step, according to Scripture, fulfilled what the Lord had said, that out of Egypt I'll call my son. Now, if you really go back to Hosea 11, chapter um, 11, verse 1, this isn't really a future event. Listen to what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further he went away from me. Now, I just have to... Do a little aside again, because I read this, I was reminded of a picture. Here is Israel. Here is Israel, this very rebellious nation, who, when God calls them, they they run further away. And it reminded me of um, a dog that we had when I was in grade school, a dog, and the dog's name was Heidi, so I'm sorry, anyone, if your name is Heidi. But anyway, we would go to the door and you, you had kind of this sense that you had to keep your eye out for Heidi because if you open the door, even when guests were coming in, Heidi had this habit of darting through the door. Anybody have a dog like that? And when we would then, all of us would go out looking for Heidi, we would call Heidi and Heidi just loved to run. She was free, she was outside and we'd call Heidi and every time you'd call Heidi, she would run farther away. Now, some of you know that in your life. Some of you might experience it even now. That when you hear, when you hear God, you hear the things of God, you, you just go, oh, I want to go farther away. Some of you, someone after the first service came up to me and said, man, I, re- I know that in my experience. For years, every time I sensed God beginning to prompt or call me or, or move towards me, I would run further away. 
Well, here's the prophecy, here's the prophetic type that you see in, in, this, in this passage of Scripture. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So what gives Matthew the right to say that the exit from Egypt was fulfilled and fulfilled the text in Hosea in this way? Jesus is often presented in the New Testament as the new Israel, the one when God would even just whisper his command. When God would hear his voice, Jesus would respond like that. When God would be talking to him, Jesus didn't run away, but he moved closer in. He became the first of God's true followers, the true and perfect Israel who does not fail, never disobeys, leads all who follow him out of slavery and out of the oppression of our own Egypts, which we caused by our sin. So let me give you another one. If in Israel, Isaiah 5 is likened to a vine that produces rotten fruit, Jesus is likened in John 15 to the vine that produces good fruit. Here another one. If Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years complaining and disobeying, Jesus spends 40 days in the desert gratefully obeying and submitting himself. So in every way, God fulfills his promises. He's with you to fulfill everything in his heart for you. Not only when he gives you his word can you count on it, but you can count on it being fulfilled to the fullest and last detail. And no matter how many promises there are, predictive in types and shadows and signs, passing, easily passed over, overlooking references or whatever the form, they are all yes in Christ, says Paul. God is saying yes to every promise in his heart for you and his people. And then there's the fourth one. God is with the brokenhearted. When your heart is broken, your spirit crushed, your dreams shattered, when you find yourself losing all hope, when you have lost that which is most precious to you and you begin to start thinking that God doesn't care, he doesn't see me, he's forgotten me. This prophetic promise is God never forgets. God remembers. God will actually dry your eyes. God has for you a day of deliverance. Because God is with you. He is with the humble. He is with the humble to fulfill everything for them. He is with those who recognize the fact that in their brokenheartedness and their dreams being crushed, there is a God who still sees who will deliver. The scene again is Herod has slaughtered every baby boy two years of old and under. There is a collective moan from the people of the land. In Bethlehem and the surrounding vicinity, there is a loud and agonizing wail of pain and grief. Thousands of hearts are broken at once. Thousands of dreams are crushed at once as they see their little boy being put to death. Moms, dads, sisters and brothers, grandpas and grandmas, uncles and aunts, cousins and friends weep and mourn all around the land. So that you hear these words in chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was filled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. A voice heard in Ramah. Ramah was the very place where when Babylon came, they actually tied all the people up as prisoners and marched them off into exile. There was great mourning, great weeping because of of their boys, of some of these parents being taken away, the Daniels and the younger, and, and and they would never see them again. In the same way that these these mothers and fathers and, and, and relatives see their little imagine that little group of kids that were singing up here and every one of those boys being removed. What happened in our own church? 
I thought about it. What if in Wyzetta there was a there was an order given that in Wyzetta and Plymouth every boy under two years of age was to be executed by order of the state? Can you imagine when you go to grocery stores or when you go to gas stations? Can you imagine the grief and the wailing in the morning that's taking place? This text pictures Rachel, the idealized mother of Israel, mourning for the nation as they are transported to exile, the royal lines cut off, the temple destroyed, the promise of God seems to be forgotten. But if you continue in this passage of Scripture, which Matthew was well aware of, he makes it very clear that your time of exile is over. Chapter 31 through 33 is all about the new covenant, the new things that God is going to do, that you will be brought back from exile. For I have plans for you, and I have plans for your future, and I will bring those to fulfillment. So that when they read this passage of Scripture, Matthew is saying, the King has come, the day of deliverance is here. Because God is with you. There's hope ahead. The exile will end. Folks, if you're in that place, you may be at year 69. There is a day of deliverance. The birth of Christ points to the end, the exile, that we in our sin and oppression have been delivered from because of Jesus. And then, there's this last one. I just think it's interesting because Matthew wants to make it so clear that this promise that God is with you reaches down to the lowest place possible. This last one is God showing himself to be with the despised. See, even at your lowest, most humbling, humiliating, shameful moment, do even to your own willingness and sin. God comes to you. He identifies with you. He doesn't stay on his throne in all his royalty, but he comes down and becomes a helpless baby, enters into this world of sin, and actually grows to take all of this world's sin on himself. And so this last prophetic promise really is the strangest of them all. You'll never find in here any direct words in the Old Testament where it literally says he will be called a Nazarene. If you look at your Bible and look in a footnote, you'll find that the Bible ties this to no Old Testament reference. It's interesting how skeptics love to point out the fact that, see, it just shows you you can't really believe Matthew. Where is he? What is this all about? He's stretching the truth. If you don't understand the broader nature of prophecy, you'll miss it. And if you also look at this, it's very interesting. Matthew chapter 2, verse 23 does not say, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophet. That's what all the other ones say. So it was fulfilled through the prophet. Singular. Matthew purposely says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. Plural. He will be called a Nazarene. And to be called a Nazarene really was not a good name. It was a, it was a pejorative name. Not something like, you know, he's, he's a Harvard guy. It's not, not something more noble like she runs an orphanage in Calcutta. This is more like he's an ex-con. She's a madam. He's a hillbilly from the backwoods. It'd be like engineers standing around going, what about, what about the new guy? Where was he trained? Oh, he's not an MIT grad, MIT grad at all. I think he, uh, I think he got his uh, degree online from Phoenix. Now, I don't come down to anybody who's had your degree from Phoenix. Okay, But I mean, that, that's the pejorative nature of it. The prophets, 
We're told by Matthew, most everyone alludes to this, that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. He will be despised. He will be rejected. He will not measure up to the expectations of those who are religious, those who are looking for this idea that God is looking for something in you rather than God is looking to do something for you. He will be humiliated. He will so fully identify with our sin and shame, even though he was sinless, having no shame. And think about this, never once in his life having to feel guilty. Jesus will take upon the reputation of the worst of the worst, die a death of a death row criminal, be executed for the sins and wrongs he did not commit. This is Jesus that Matthew presents as the one who was born at Christmas that we celebrate. This is Jesus who you serve, who became poor so that you could become rich. And this is the Jesus who is broken and bruised so that you might be healed and restored. This is the Jesus who was rejected so you could be accepted. This is the Jesus who was hated so that we might all fully experience the love of God, not only before God, not only with one another, but even in ourselves, being able to appreciate who we are in all humility. This Jesus, born this week of Christmas, became sin so that you and I would no longer have to be sin in the eyes of the Heavenly Father. So that your Heavenly Father could look at you with all kinds of love and admiration, with the sense of, this is my son who I'm well pleased and be able to say to you, this is my daughter who I just love, this is my son who I love. Every one of you, not because of you, but because of what has been imputed to you by the very work of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, has now come to a place where when you receive this and accept it and, 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 and understand that this gift is a gift from God and you want it and you want to get out of your own works and all your own stuff and all the things that you think you can impress people with and impress God with, and you realize that all that is mere rags it's filthy compared to this one sterling truth that you have been given new life you have been forgiven you have been made in his eyes not guilty you have all that he wants to give you in every way because of him and his love for you and he looks at you this way and that's what this prophet points to think of the most shameful thing you've ever done Feelings of shame and humiliation. Think of, you just think about the most. Think about that. Now, now I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell him. No, just kidding. The thought should horrify you. But God sees it. He's not horrified at you. He loves you. He's removed it from, your, from, from you. You don't need to tell any neighbor unless it's for some healthy reason to be able to let God work in your life. He is present with us. Emmanuel means God with us. God with those who are humble and insignificant and are willing to say, you know what, I'm not to show, but I want you to be it. He is with those who say, God, I'm going to walk lockstep with you because I still want you in my life. And he says, I'm so excited because in my heart I have promises and I will fulfill them. Every dot and every T will be crossed in your life because I love you. And he is with you in the midst of those times when you feel crushed and broken and all, all hope is lost. And he's telling you there is a day it will come to an end. 
And he's with you because he understands what it means to be despised. He has heard the condemning voice of Satan in the wilderness. He has heard the voice of Satan condemning him through the people. He has heard that voice saying, you, the son of God, how can you claim that and hang on a cross? And he hears when you have that voice in your own head and God says, let it go and trust in, grab hold of with all your hands and all your heart, the promise of what God has told you and rest in the truth that he is with you and that he is with those who are insignificant. And he is with those in every way that he will bring the end to that broken hearted Crushing experience, a day of deliverance will be yours no matter how much that voice cries out that you are despised. It's not true. He loves you. And so do you believe it? I'm, I'm really trying to grow in this myself. Do you believe it when God says, today I am with you, you do not have to fear? Do you see every day as a gift? Every day is a gift given to you from God. Every moment that you move into is a gift given you from God. Every breath that you take is a gift given you by God. One of my elders sent me this a couple of weeks ago. Yesterday is history. Today is a mystery. Tomorrow is a mystery. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. That is why it is called the present. Live and serve every moment. This is not a dress rehearsal. Today is a gift. This story is so clear. You are not a slave to the past. You are not in any way having to be bound to the future. What if, oh God, I'm worried, you know, you take this away or that goes. You can live in the present and experience the presence of God because he is with you. And here's what I want you to think about. Do you want him with all your heart? Do we want him with all our hearts? And then if you understand the present is a present of this fact that God is with you, What will you do with that presence? You are to be a present to others, to help them move out of their past or or away from trying just to think merely about the fears of the future. You go from here as a gift of God's presence to be a present. You don't have to, in some sense, worry about buying some extremely expensive gift this year. You're free. Okay, when your wife says, well, what did you get me? You go, pastor said you didn't have to get you anything. You're off the hook. No, just kidding. You are the present. Tomorrow, when you wake up in the morning, that breath that you take, that moment you move into, that, that day that you begin to live, you are a present to someone else of the presence of God. And so the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and I can tell you as we walk in that, and we hold to this promised land that we know is out there, and we hold with all our heart to the promise, we will begin to see the promise of the presence of God show up in a way that we'll all be amazed. It's not easy. It's not a bed of roses. But it's a life that says more important than anything else in this world is living in the presence 
of God. I'm going to ask us to pray. Father, what incredible truth. How can our hearts not worship you? How can we not say, God, everything I am, I give to you. How can we not want this great presence? And then, God, how could we ever, how can I ever withhold that present from others? God, use us, move through us, and do this all, we pray, within your name. Amen.